Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. Today on Laugh Your Cry Out, I have Asia Redan as my guest. Asia was a New York Times bestselling author with her first book, Stoned, which is as entertaining as it is incisive. Stoned is a journey through the history of human desire for what is rare and therefore precious. And her background in ancient history and physics gave her writing a truly unique perspective that made the stories come alive. But that's not the book we'll be talking about this morning. Today, we'll be talking with her about her new book, The Truth About Lies. Buttressed by history, psychology, and her love of science, The Truth About Lies is an eye-opening primer of con artistry, from pyramid schemes to shell games, forgeries, and hoaxes. Listen in and hear for yourself why this book is also slated to be another bestseller. I mean, there's a couple things I want to at least address, one of which is your background and your education, specifically in ancient history and physics. I've never seen that in an author, not that there aren't other authors like you, but that was so cool and it was so obvious because the way you describe stories with your love of history and then how you can weave physics in, specifically like the elements and periodic tables and things that I'm trying to teach my kids right now, I was just blown away by. So cool for you. Thank you. And your voice, I laughed out loud so many times. Good. That I know you were trying to do, but I think what really encapsulated it for me was that... No, I can't help it. You should hear me talk at funerals. It's terrible. <laughs> well, yes, you're the one that giggles at funerals, right? Um, but it's the worse fact when is, I'm giving the eulogy. <laughs> that's even better. You said somewhere, and I, and I will conflate your two books because I just read them this week. That's fair enough. You said, you said somewhere that <laughs> you wanted to be a KGB agent as a kid. <laughs> Yes, I did not know very much about um, national security or economic theory or anything. I just really liked the Over the Knee Boots. Yes, well, and, I saw and, the James Bond movies. I was like six. Yes, well, I've I've been showing my kids James Bond movies since they're they're about seven and nine, and that was the first year that my wife allowed me to watch. And they have to they make me fast forward through the. Uh, the kissing scenes because they're not really into that yet, but they like they like the blood and the guts and the suits, the tuxedos, and how what handsome they are. Say though about our culture, <laughs> Dad, we want to see gross murder, but no physical intimacy. <laughs> right, they're, they still think girls have cooties at this point. So, well, we do. Uh, yes, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So, again, thank you so much. I. Um, I sent you a note originally because I just penned my first book and maybe my last, but it was a memoir called Joey Somebody. Everyone feels that way when they finish their book. Oh, it, yeah. I'm, like, I'm never writing another book. I just said that <laughs> to someone the other day. They're like, what's your next book about? And I'm like, I'm never writing another book. Are you crazy? Did you say that after you wrote Stone? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Then maybe I'll write um, another one. I was just... Someone asked me that quite after. And I said, dude, this is like asking a woman when she's going to give birth while she's crowning. Like that's just not not something yeah. I want to. Yeah, I don't. I can't even think about it. I just asked a boxer it. just got punched in the face when his next match is. <laughs> exactly, and in my book, and I sent you one chapter. I, I read thought, it. Wait. Okay, so I've been lied to by my father my whole life, and so like part of this going at this, you know, your book, Truth About Lies, was 
selfish because I was like, because I've been lied to my whole life and because I got taken advantage of with kind of the same type of folk as my dad, even at the climax of my business career where I sent you those chapters because Daniel and Tyler were after my business partners and I had you know, some big accolades. We had Agency of the Year 2011, 2012. We shot a documentary that went really well. And we went out and did a bunch of business and we were kicking some butt. And then I went to work with that startup that I shared with you. And it was all a bubble. It was just And somebody convinced you you could do better and you left. I did. And it was all ego and I blamed it on myself. (laughs) As you know, I didn't take... I wasn't blaming other people. Oh, man. Yeah. To varying degrees. That's why this book was so fascinating for me because it's... You did a really good job, obviously very professorial in your research, but you... You came out and really wanted to understand like the basics of the big lie, right? Which was kind of how you started How out. funny is it that that's my first chapter? I wrote that two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and look at you now. <laughs> I keep seeing it on TV. People yeah. Go, big lie. The big lie. The big, big lie. Like, the big well. lie. Yes. And you did. So two years ago, you coined that. And now it looks like our former president was trying to turn that lie on himself yesterday when he's talking about the big lie of the thing not being true, which is the big lie of our election being a fraud. He's so, stupid. Yeah, he's not. He's not. That is a brilliant and um, God, it felt gross in my mouth saying brilliant. <laughs> it's a brilliant way to lie. Whatever you did, if possible, preemptively say the other person who's going to accuse you did it. If I robbed your house, I need to call 911 and tell them, Joey robbed my house. Right. And then I need to tell everyone we know that you broke into my house because you're crazy and you're a stalker or something. And right. you rifled my house <clears throat> on and on and on. So later when it comes out that I did this to you, no one will believe it. They're like, I've heard this story before. Yeah. No, wait, he broke into her house. You've got the details wrong. Right. Or even if they don't think you've got the details wrong, they'll think, I've heard this story before. This is just, I know you are, but what am I? She did not break into your house, you liar. Right. right. It's, it's a very, it's kind of, it's, it's um, a chess strategy, actually. It's entrapment. Okay. You accuse the other person of what you've done preemptively. And if you can't, you try to do it after the fact. And sometimes that works too. Well, and you mentioned it, I do think it was this book. You talk about Steve Bannon. I did. I tried really hard not to talk about current politics, but there you were did a couple a good places job, where... You, didn't, you only mentioned Trump once, parenthetically, I think. <clears throat> and then you mentioned Steve Bannon in this exact sense, because he talked about just absolutely abolishing every institution possible through mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about, which is just repeating the same bullshit over and over and over. And at that point, it comes true. And you have... There is a... So you have a name for it. I'm forgetting, but it was the illusory truth effect. That's it. The illusory truth effect. Thank you. <laughs> it's actually and, the way your brain works. Um, your brain right. associates novelty in terms of how many times have neurons zipped down this particular path with accuracy, because you hear true things far more often than you hear novel, untrue things. Right. right? If I said the moon is smaller than the sun. You don't have to think hard about whether or not that's true. Zip, you know it's true. Feels familiar, yep. right? Yep. Also how drug marketing works. 
the more you see it, the more you believe it, the more you trust it, the more it's a foregone conclusion. And it works really, really well. It's a backbone of propaganda. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you knew it was bullshit the first time you heard it. You hear it over and over and over and over, and it becomes more and more and more familiar until your brain recognizes that familiarity as veracity. And right. it starts to feel true. Okay. As weird as that sounds. Well, and that's, and I don't want to get political either, but in, in our body politic, they've been using that for since the beginning of time then. I mean, well, all yeah. the way back to the Romans, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just, if, and because we have this big media machine on 24 hours a day, the repeated lies are more repeatable. And then, and therefore then more ingrained into our brain. And we believe that. There, there are two halves to it. One is you repeat them. Someone repeats them, you hear them and they get more familiar. And with that familiarity comes trust, becomes honesty bias. You believe it because you've been presented with it so many times. Right. On the other hand, you start to repeat it. And whether you're repeating it in the sense of, did you hear or you're repeating it in the sense of, did you hear this bullshit? Right. It doesn't matter. You're repeating it. And early on in the book, I talk about the fact that studies have been done that show liars become less confident in the truth after lying. Right. And it doesn't even matter if it was your lie, which suggests to some degree truth is performative. We say it and then we believe it even more than when we hear it. If you repeat a lie, even just to discredit it, you become less confident in the alternate story. It's why we pledge allegiance. It's why we say vows when we get married. We say it out loud and it becomes the truth in your mind. So the more we talk about these big lies, the more they start to hmm. occupy that strange amorphous area in between true and fake, and I heard it, and maybe, and who knows? Wow. And, That's what and, you, end up. you end up with, it's impossible to say. And the one you started off with, and maybe I'm, I may, I might, my memory might be off already, but the Gregor, McGregor Island <laughs> story. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that blew my mind because of the audacity of the lie. That's how the big lie right? works. Exactly. And that's what you're talking about is that the bigger it is, the more likely you are to believe it. And the stupider on, it is. Yeah. And the less proof there is for it. Right. It's the opposite of everything you believe about lies. That's how the big lie works. Um, so what I wanted to do was uh, figure out what kind of lies there are and how they work and why people believe them. And they all, they all work sort of differently. But the way this one works is you expect a lie needs to be well-crafted. You think it needs to be believable. You might need some proof of some kind, some, something. Actually, I think I said in the book, if you, told some, if you lie to someone about owning an island, they're more likely yep. to believe you than if you lie about owning a boat. Right. Because that's within the realm of belief, and people lie about that. Nobody lies about owning an island. So if you don't seem crazy and there's no obvious evidence that you're lying and you tell someone you own an island, they're more likely to believe you than not. And so the way the big lie works is not actually in opposition to our understanding of objective fact 
or a universal sense of reality, it's actually in concert with it. We all know what's real and what's not, we think. We all know who's an obvious crazy person and who isn't, who's an apparent liar. And so when we're confronted with a seemingly normal person who says, I just got back from the nation of Koyeus. And uh, I'd like to tell you about it. You don't go, I don't think that place exists. Right. The thing is, this man, Gregor McGregor, he was a sort of faux adventurer, mercenary type. And he went to South America, killed a lot of people, fucked around, came back, the prince or kazik, that was the word for it, of Poyeus. It was a nation in South America that nobody had heard of, which wasn't that weird in that era. There were still places people hadn't heard of. And he sold it, sold the hell out of it. He, he had a book someone else had written called um, Sketch of the Mosquito Coast, I think. Right. And uh, he had bi- botanical samples and he had a few dressed up, natives who came back with him. And he also had a charter saying that he had basically gotten the local potentate blind drunk and had him sign it over to him, which was also a thing Englishmen did in those days, although he was Scottish. And everybody just freaked out. This was shortly after the Revolutionary War. So England wanted more colonies in the new world and Scotland had never had any colonies. And he sold every part of it, literally and figuratively. He sold currency that he printed himself. Right. Your own money if you were a colonist. Why not? He's you, a prince. You send me your pounds, <laughs> shillings, and I'll give you this Poyeus money. And he sold farms. He sold estates. He sold titles of nobility. Wow. He, That's right. That's right. He, I mean, but Poyeus was amazing. It was a tropical paradise. It had like three annual harvests. It had gold. It had precious gems. It had these incredibly friendly locals called the Poyeyers. Those were the people he brought back with him. He ended up raising the bond price to, God, I can't remember. I think it was something like $4.6 billion. Today's valuation, yeah. Yeah. And he borrowed from a bank (laughs) originally to get the very... Oh, yeah. He he was made (laughs) Sir Gregor McGregor by the king. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first, he got a huge amount of money from a respectable bank. And it just, it snowballed. And the more he lied, <laughs> and the more crazy it was, I mean, Bigger. who makes up an island? Right. Nobody. So he ultimately had all of these colonists who had invested every penny they had sold their homes, traded in their money, ready to go, packed on the ships. Two of them sailed off to Poyeus. And you'd think at this point, maybe he wasn't really the prince of Poyeus. Maybe they're going to get there and the locals aren't so friendly. And that's not how the story turns out. The way it turns out is there is no Poyeus. He just made it up. <laughs> and he was just a sociopath who sent hundreds. Uh. Oh, I don't know what just happened. Hang on a sec. It's okay. There. Who sent hundreds and hundreds of people to die. And most and of they them did, did, right? Yeah. And they were still packing more ships full of colonists. And most of them did. They made their way to this crappy little section of the Mosquito Coast near Nicaragua. 
And they tried to survive for as long as they could. There were a handful left out of hundreds when a British merchant ship picked them up and brought them back. And the most upsetting part of this story is that when they got back, they defended him. Right. That blew me away. That blew me away. Well, not really. Did it though? No, because I kept going back to my father. So it's, it's, you want to believe. president. Yep. Yeah. Very similar. They just kept defending him in the most outrageous ways possible. They said maybe the colony was destroyed. Maybe rival agents sabotaged it. Maybe the boat put us in the wrong place. Right. They even defended him in court. He got off scot-free. No pun intended. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that sounded bad when I said that out loud. He got off free and went to France and decided to take it for another spin and just did it again. Wow. Yeah, and is that the cognitive bias that you talk about too? I mean, that's when you get into that level of, or cognitive dissonance, where you just can't deal with the two realities colliding? Is that... There, yeah, there are a lot of reasons in? people do that, but cognitive dissonance is a big one. Yeah. You can't, you know, it's been said that the sign of an intelligent person is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in their mind at once. And it's a very clever turn of phrase, but neurologically speaking, it's factually untrue. That's the sign of a deeply disturbed, neurologically impaired, probably dangerous individual. Normal right. people can't hold two contradictory beliefs or facts simultaneously in their mind. And so what happens when you're presented with that is one idea has to go away. And it doesn't matter which one's true. It matters which one you believed, and it matters which one is a sort of load-bearing belief. Which one are your other beliefs based on? Which one are your other actions? Did you get on a boat to Poyais? You need to justify that. Correct. Right? So that's a load-bearing belief that Poyais was real. Hmm. That makes so sense. You, and you I, can't believe it wasn't. No. And I, I grew up in a rural area of California. Uh, it's called Santa Rosa, and it's a wonderful oh, that place. Is. Yeah, so it's about 40 miles north of San Francisco. I'm from Santa Barbara. Oh, wow. So you know exactly where it is. And mm-hmm. I love these people that I went to high school with. They're sweet and kind and wonderful and hardworking. I know where this is going. And most of them, yeah, most of them, I don't want to say most, but a big chunk of my friends are Trumpers. And I grew up in the business world in San Francisco, New York City. So I spent the last 25 years of my life in Liberalville, if you will. And so I'm their favorite libtard. I'm the guy that, you know, lives in the city, which is only 40 miles away, but they're very sweet. And we've gone back and forth over the last four years on Mr. Trump. And then I'm, I have friends on the, from New York and San Francisco, when they're on the feed, they'll say, how do you put up with these people? Why do you put up with these people? And part of my dialogue, even when we have drinks together, is like, they're really good people. And because I'm in the ad biz, and most of my friends are, I'm like, guys, we know better. Like, we've studied behavioral science. We understand sequential messaging. We understand the repetitive nature of ads. We understand why they work. So don't act like we don't know why these people believe what they believe. And that's why this book was also fascinating to me, because it's I'm just trying to understand better, not only my, the rift between my friends on the coasts and my friends in the rural area, it's what you encapsulated so well in this book is that it's not only existing today, it has forever existed (laughs) since the beginning. Yeah, that was was my initial premise was that, um, you know, they say there are only so many stories 
Boy Correct. Meets Girl, Heroes Quest, whatever. For a writer, I'm just like, oh, whatever. I don't remember what they were. <laughs> um, I think there are only so many lies. And I tried to boil it down to what are these foundational, primal lies upon which any other lie you tell someone is based. Right. Any lie you tell somebody is based on one of these kinds of lies. And once I got there, I realized these are really well explained, if not encapsulated, by cons, like, mm-hmm. like a shell game or Correct. like a pyramid scheme. And yeah. then I went, oh, that's why that's the oldest profession. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because because that's, that's the physical manifestation of these lies. And <clears throat> yeah, people have been doing it forever, but we're not the only ones. The biggest blind spot humans have is thinking they're special. Yeah. I, I think I said somewhere in the book, my, of all my, of all the self-perpetuating delusions there are, my favorite is the delusion of novelty. And <laughs> <laughs> that was actually, I think in the chapter about drug marketing. But how this yes. is our second opioid epidemic, actually. Our, our, yeah. second, our second racially charged pharma-financed opioid epidemic in 120 years. So I think the most, whoops. I think the most <laughs> pronounced thing in that chapter for me was that Valium and the placebo effect that you talked about. Because that blew me away. As someone who suffers from chronic anxiety, I've never been medicated. Uh, I did once and I really hated it. That kind of scared me in the sense that, okay. And then you went into some really wonderful detail on the placebo effect specific to pharmacology in general. But the Valium one said that unless the user understands that they took it, it does not have an effect. That's, that was in the double-blind study, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just blew me away. Which suggests that Valium ain't nothing but a placebo. And they still sell it. <laughs> a they lot of it. Take it. But I'm highly suggestible. I, I admit it in the hoax chapter. I love hoaxes. Yes. So I, yeah, I'm. Do well, you, you believe? You believe the mermaid hoax? I'm sure you want to say that. <laughs> I was like, well, the truth will set you free. But well, it does, and it's easier. You actually you don't have to remember anything. Well, yes. Wasn't that Mark Twain? If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like common sense to me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that <clears throat> the shell game itself, I laughed at because the first time I got to New York City, I was 24 mm-hmm. and I was with them, some college buddies and we went downtown and I lost $10 in about four seconds and they were laughing at me because <laughs> they were from the East Coast. And I think my net worth at the time was about $20. So it was a pretty big deal. And then when I read about uh, Jefferson Randolph Smith losing six months of salary in less than five minutes. I felt a little better. Uh, he made it back. <laughs> well, did he ever? And he came up with the pyramid scheme, right? No, no, no. That's a different chapter. Jefferson Randolph Smith is the guy who both, in terms of the big lie, ran the telegraph wires to nowhere. Right. In Alaska. Okay, that's right. For $2, you can send a telegram home. Right. There were no telegraph wires in Alaska right. <laughs> except in his office. And people did it. They paid him lots of money for a long period of time to send messages nowhere. And um, he was also sort of the king of the shell game. That's he what the shell game, okay. That was he it. built an entire criminal enterprise based on the shell game. And then he hustled the wrong guy one night and he got shot. It happens. At the at peak of his criminal fame. 
but well, he, was I, so, he was so good at it. He is still very much uh, a figure of, of not respect, but professional reverence for magicians everywhere. Well, that was another thing too, is it, I don't know if it was the Mary Neurons, but you talk about the magician with, when we watch a magician throw the balls in the air, mm-hmm. right? What's going on there? when they fool us, what happens with your brain? Because they throw the so, balls up and you just continue to see it. <clears throat> so there's a great trick where you take a ball, I'm going to take a ball, I can do it for you. Take a little ball, magician, looks at the ball, looks at you, looks at the ball, tosses the ball up, catches it. Tosses the ball up, catches it. Tosses the ball up, oh my God, it's gone. It vanished into thin air. Right. And that didn't really happen, obviously. Correct. What happened was on the third toss, he looked up, moved his hand up, and never let go of the ball. It's still just in his hand. But you saw it go up and then vanish into thin air. And the way the trick works is that your mind is actually working about a tenth of a second behind reality. That's how much slower your neurons fire than information comes at you. Your brain doesn't have the bandwidth to process everything that's happening all the time. Like right now, we're making eye contact. Yeah. And I think I can see a lamp over there and a plant over there, but I don't. My brain just knows they're there because they were there before, so they filled them in for me. Huh. If all of a sudden, a big tarantula jumped out of the plant, it would take at least a tenth of a second for my brain to notice something had changed and snap back to, hey, look over there. But your brain can only focus very, nar- very narrowly, like a spotlight, on one thing at a time. And the way that tenth of a second delay affects you is that what you're seeing is an approximation of reality that isn't necessarily accurate. It's just useful. And you're also living at least a tenth of a second in the past. Hmm. And so with the blue ball trick, the biggest part of it is it's what magicians and neurologists both call persistence of vision. You expect to see it. Your brain has already gotten used to it. The hand goes up, the eyes go up, the ball goes up. Hand goes up. I, your brain is priming you to see this ball. And since nothing's changed that it knows of, it started filling it in for you and looking for newer, more important information scanning around you. And it fills the ball in until the ball doesn't come down. And then it goes, wait, what? And that's when the ball vanishes because it wasn't really there. And the mirror neurons are, they're a type of neurons that everyone has. Some people's are more developed than others, but they're what make you make eye contact. I smile, you smile back. Right. Um, somebody looks at their hand, you look at their hand. Somebody looks up, you look up, right? It's how you get somebody to look where you want them to look or in other cases, see what you want them to see. Wow. And then you gave an example, I think, <laughs> again, the, which book, but, and I think I've seen this online where they have basketball players in white shirts and they pass the ball and they say, watch the passes back and forth. How many times did they pass the back, the ball back and forth between the white jerseys? Mm-hmm. And then during that exercise, they look forward and at some point in the experiment, they have a gorilla, a guy in a gorilla suit, walk through the camera, yeah. right? Yeah. And we don't see it. The invisible gorilla. It's a very famous experiment into something called inattentional blindness. So not only is your brain 
scanning for new information and filling in the rest. Like it's playing old security films for you. Tenth of a second old. And not only is it capable of filling in things that aren't there because it expects them to be there because that's what it's doing with most of what you see around you. It's also capable of not seeing things it doesn't expect. So a a scientist, um, two scientists, uh, Simmons and Chabraith, did an experiment that eventually went viral on the internet because it was so crazy. They had a basketball game and they had test subjects. And they said, watch this basketball game on this monitor. White shirts, some other shirts. Count how many times the white shirts pass the ball. And everybody sat there and they said, watch closely. They sat there and watch closely. When it was over, some of them got the right number. Some of them got close. Some of them didn't. They did not notice that a person in a full gorilla suit walks right into the middle of the game, goes like this, <laughs> stares at the camera, does it again, looks around, wow. walks away. So it was that pronounced. It wasn't like they put him in the background. It wasn't fast. It wasn't sneaky. Wow. It was casual, but it was right there. Blatant. They did not see it. Wow. And I don't think I, I can't remember if I did it, but I remember seeing the meme or or the video at some point. Well, once you know about it, you see it. But Correct. you can't. Yeah, once you see the it. Way, it's like an optical illusion. But the way inattentional blindness works is that narrow focus I talked about. It's a yeah. It's all magic tricks. It's a spotlight. Your brain works like a spotlight, and your attention can only look at one thing at a time. And it can only think about one thing at a time. And it can only process a certain amount of it. You know how when you're trying to download something on your computer that's huge? Yeah. Everything else slows down. Yeah. It's kind of like that. That's it. So <laughs> they're looking at the basketball players in the white shirts and they see the gorilla. But not only is their attention on something else, they don't expect to see a gorilla in a basketball right. game. Right. So their mind just airbrushes it out of the frame. Man, that's so terrifying. We, we actually can't believe our eyes. No. <laughs> no. Right. That's the ultimate way you can't be. It's why witness statements never line up. It's why memories of arguments are not the same. I mean, there are a bunch of other reasons in different chapters, but just believing your eyes. It's why you don't see your car keys when they're right in front of you. Right. It's no, you cannot believe your eyes. You absolutely cannot believe your eyes. Man. (laughs) The idea that perception. Well, the idea that seeing something is valid is almost funny because the sensory input we get is much too much for us to deal with. So then we throw most of it away and we do a best guesstimate of what might be there. And then we airbrush out anything that's too weird. And then we fill in things that we think should have been there. And then the whole thing's happening on a time delay. And it's it's just cobbled together with expectations and biases and and it's a mess <laughs> it is and and i didn't realize how frail how could you be upset you lost money at Card <laughs> monte i mean the hustle is just getting you to play of course you lost money once you played you yeah. can't not they're exploiting <clears throat> loopholes in our visual cortex in how it works and do the best con men in the world study this are you born with it or do they is it a combination of both like do they understand the human condition oh. yeah okay oh because it that's 
And I think like all other somewhat, I, I like history, so it's not that I'm completely unversed, but I did not know to the extent the relationship between Rasputin and the Romanovs and what really? that was all. Of. No, I mean, to some degree you studied it. I didn't know that he smelled like a goat, which I, I laughed out loud when you wrote that. I didn't know that he was that dirty and gross or that he had harems <laughs> and that basically everyone loved him and thought he was some kind of deity. I mean, I knew that he, he was a, a charlatan, mm-hmm. famous for being a charlatan, but the extent mm-hmm. of which he went to and and how he worked. Well, I don't know. Maybe he was really a psychic, I, but it had nothing to do with the with the grift he was running. No, well, because did you believe that? Because a lot of the things he did, I were, believe he was a psychic. A psychic. Uh, I believe if my brain can airbrush out a gorilla in the middle of a basketball game. <laughs> it's probably airbrushed out a lot of things. And yeah. I believe, I don't know what I know. So yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> he could have been. My point was just, it couldn't be less relevant to the story because it's not how he did what he did. How did he do what he did? Well, he pulled a guru con. That was the subject of that chapter. And yep. gurus come in all shapes and sizes. And they're not always religious, though they frequently are. It, it often involves a spiritual or metaphysical or supernatural element, which makes it very difficult to talk people out of because mm-hmm. there's no way to go, oh, look, there's proof this isn't true. Not that that really works on people once they've believed something. But a guru con is basically where they're cult leaders. It's where you mm-hmm. convince someone that you have some special knowledge, special ability. Now, that could be I'm a psychic. Or it could be, I'm the world's greatest political consultant, and only I can make you president. Or it could be, I know everything about health, and I am beautiful and have never gotten any older, and that's why you should buy this vagina-scented candle. (laughs) Yes. Burn your house down. Um, Goop. Goop. (laughs) That was in the snake oil chapter, though. Yes, it was. Um, That was good. It could have been in it, but there's so much crossover between lies that they really, there's a lot of, places where they could have been in different chapters. And that was sort of my point was that these are sort of primal lies. But the way he did it was the way all cult leaders do it. First, you target somebody weak. And weak isn't a bad thing. Weak could mean you just lost your job. Weak could mean you, you can't find someone to share your life with. Weak could mean you had a rough time with your family. Weak could mean you have a sick little boy and no one can help him, like the yeah. Sarevich Alexei, who had yeah. hemophilia. Yeah. You target somebody weak, with a weakness, and you convince them that only you can fix it. And they believe you. And their belief becomes recursive, because the more they believe you, the more they have to continue to believe you, or their whole cognitive model falls apart. And it works with televangelists. It works with politicians. It it worked in the 1800s with a cult called spiritualism. It's where we get all our ideas about ghosts and seances and nonsense. The way you start is you get a foot in the door and then you tell people what they need to hear, what they want to hear. Your son's going to be fine. You're a good mother. Everything things okay if you're the Tsarina, depending on who else you are, 
if you're a televangelist, I think I pointed out, it's, you know, you're a really good person. You really are very put upon. Right. And, you know, it's okay that you, you know, voted for this or don't like that or threw somebody out of your neighborhood. And the more you believe them, the deeper in their hooks go. And eventually they start to make suggestions about money or similar things, usually money though. Send money. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry? Send money. Please send, send money. money. Yeah, that was Jim yeah. Baker. Just yep. send money. Please send money. Um, it was pretty shameless. Not as shameless as the megachurch thing. but. Um, well, I want to get into that too, because my mom is a huge fan of Joel Osteen. So. <laughs> and by the way, if I tell her I have this conversation, she'll do exactly what everyone does when they don't want to believe it. Because we had the same conversation after the, the flood. Yeah. When he closed the church. Yeah. Right. But the point is, once they've got their hooks really deep in, they start telling you other things, not things you want to believe, things they want you to believe. I am a great psychic. I should be making political appointments. I am infallible. I can do whatever bullshit Rasputin was throwing out. By that point, had to be believed because if it wasn't true, he wasn't infallible. And if he isn't right. infallible, then those things she needed to believe everything's going to be fine. I can save your son. You're a good mother. This is all going really well. Don't worry about that pounding at the gates. Right. Shaking chandeliers. <laughs> yeah. And that's not true either. <laughs> and that's why I asked you about if you believed he was psychic, because there were two things that he did that were, well, the fact that he actually did, at least in appearance, save her child's life, right? Because he started mm -hmm. bleeding, he put his hand on the head, and that goes back to, possibly the placebo effect too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The child might have actually believed he was a, this a man from God. Though? Yes. Those people really do stand up and walk for a minute. doesn't work the next day. Right. The mind is complicated and the mind-body interface is not well understood. And if he really believed, and his mother really believed, and he was a little boy, and he really right. believed whoever his mother really believed, and all the people yeah. around them really believed that, thank God, their Lord and Savior was here with his was big here. magic and everything was going to be fine. Yeah. Among other things, he that could have been like, you know, a solid dose of a tenolol. Like that could have just dropped his blood pressure to almost nothing. And it's not that hemophiliacs can't form clots. It's that they can't form clots in any useful, meaningful, real-time way. So if his blood pressure was slow enough, eventually, it would have clotted. And that's the big piece that he believed it because he believed that his blood pressure went down and because his blood pressure went down, there was a possibility of a clot that probably wouldn't have been if he was panicked. Yeah. You know what else helps that happen? Endorphins. You know what causes endorphins? Love. The most important love and physical contact and yeah. also when the most important holy man in the Russian empire is right. kneeling at the foot of your bed, praying for you, saying, you're going to be fine. I'm here now and I have magic powers. Yeah. Then you'd be like, I feel uh, the light of the Lord. Yeah. I feel fine. I feel yeah. woozy. That's a lot of endorphins and blood loss. And my blood pressure is down to like nothing. And I'm, oh, hey, what do you know? It stopped bleeding. There you go. And that's a lot of the things you talk about. Authority bias comes into there too then, right? Because he... Yeah. For me as a young boy, I, I went to Catholic Church, so I really enjoyed your piece of <laughs> Catholicism. The oh, in the other book. <laughs> yes. That, that was, was more great. in the other book. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, you touched on it in this book too, but not much. Just, just barely. I figured, barely. They, you know, I just, <laughs> I gave him a kick in the last book. I kicked the Protestants in this one. Just you gotta be fair. Give, you got to give both. You got to give both. Got to keep it even-handed. <laughs> fair and balanced. That's the catchphrase I've heard. Yes, I think that one worked for another radio or another media empire. It does work. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that those I think that I think the amalgamation of all the pieces you talk about, you know, the bait and switch and the authority bias and the honesty bias and the cognitive dissonance and all these pieces and parts. I've read individuals, but as you kind of put them all together in the book, it really started to make sense. And you talk about the fact that the reason that we get lied to and will continue to be lied to is because our brains are working correctly. Yes, that's the most important takeaway from this book. Yeah. That lies exploit loopholes in our brain and those loopholes are there because your brain is doing what it's supposed to. For example, yeah. filtering out noise so I can see you. Right. Now that makes me susceptible to seeing a blue ball that's not there or it makes me susceptible to falling for a shell game. Yeah. Price of doing business, man. In a bait and switch, it exploits things you already know by presenting you with fake proof, but real fake proof, like a gold brick. A gold yeah. brick was a, during the gold rush, it was a lead bar that was coated in gold, just thick enough that you could file it, you could scratch it with an engraver. It's gold. And you're like, well, I know what gold is. I know how heavy gold is. I know if I had, if this were a fake, couldn't have filed it or scratched it. I'll take it. Right. You've fallen victim to believing facts you already know to be true and believing facts you're presented with, which are true. It is gold on the outside, but then extending that to create a larger picture. And we're supposed to do that. And again, not just humans. Everything does that. I think in that chapter, I talk a lot about bugs and animals. Yes. You know, um, there wouldn't be so many interesting kinds of camouflage if everything didn't have a part of its brain that liked to extrapolate a larger hole from a very small glimpse. You know, there's a, there's a moth that has big wings with a pattern on them that when they spread them out, I swear to God, it looks just like the face and eyes of an owl. And birds that would otherwise eat it, see it, panic, and bolt. That's cool. Not because they saw an owl. But because for a second, they thought they saw right. an owl looking at them and ran away. And it's a gold brick. That was yeah. actually a tasty little moth. But they know what owls look like and they know what they just saw and they believed their eyes and they put the two together and they extrapolated the wrong larger picture. And then there's another piece you talk about called salting. Yeah. similar, right? Salting is exactly the same thing. It's presenting someone with real fake proof in the gold rush, particularly, but it never stopped because I think that chapter ended with mortgage-backed securities. Yes. Um, yeah. Salting is a practice of taking a barren mine, say a gold mine, diamond mine, taking what you want to be in it from somewhere else in the world. Tiffany's. I don't know. Yeah. Sprinkling it in the dirt, in the water, just enough. Not so that somebody would see it and go, oh my God, I found a giant piece of gold. They'd see gold flake. Right. And they would go, there's gold here. And they would buy it from you for a lot of money. And you would be way out of there months later when they realized there was never any gold there. It was all on the surface and it was in 10 square feet. 
And salting is a way of presenting someone again with real fake proof. You give them something, you put it in a context that something's real, the context is real, but there's a lie at the heart of it. And this particular kind of lie is important because it's the kind people fall for most often in their life. Like you're not friend. He, you said he always met right. you at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Yes. And you said you met him at a marketing conference, I think? I did. We were both, we were both speakers at a conference. Right. And well, he, I watched him speak and then he watched me speak. And then he took everything I said and, and said it back to you? flattered me. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, he just, you're so creative. Special. You're so wonderful. Yeah. And he was awesome in hindsight. Guru shit. Well, it does, when it would look, and this is part of the salting too, because Daniel was a, was an actual He salted his conversation and interactions with real facts, real people. Yes. Yeah, and course. it made it more powerful, right? Because to your point, you said this before, the, if You're there's truth involved... You're extrapolating a wrong, bigger picture. Our brains are supposed to extrapolate a bigger picture. You yes. know, you see... Smoke, you extrapolate fire. Good for you. You're going to, you're the caveman is not going to die. Yeah. That's how evolution works. You, you see something rustling in the bushes. You extrapolate, oh my God, that's an animal. I better run. Or that's a little animal. Maybe I could catch it and eat it. It doesn't matter. You've seen something you know. Yeah. You've taken other facts you know. Animals make grass go like this. Fire makes smoke go in the cave. You've extrapolated a bigger picture. Yeah. Most of the time we get it right. Yeah. But sometimes we get it wrong and we always get it wrong when someone wants us to. Hmm. When somebody presents you with real fake proof. Yeah. In a context that is designed to make you come to a particular conclusion, like a gold mine full of gold flake in right. the middle of the gold rush. Would you believe there was gold nearby? I would. So would Obviously, I. I would. And I actually have a background in these things. <clears throat> so, I mean, I wouldn't have fallen for the one I talked about in the book, the Philip Arnold Diamond Swindle, because I know a lot about gemology and mining. Right. And he, they did it so badly. It's amazing how many people fell for it. Uh, they just took actual diamonds. And so the diamond rush was going on in South Africa around the same time the gold rush was going on in America. And there's gold and silver and these mining swindles were everywhere. But Americans saw all the diamonds coming out of South Africa and they're like, we really, this country's so big, we don't have any diamonds. People were waiting for somebody to find some diamonds. And these two grifters uh, managed to convince the president of the Bank of California and a whole lot of other people, including Tiffany himself, as right. in Tiffany's, and some generals and some congressmen and a whole lot of people that they had found the mother lode of not just diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, garnets, which that's the part that just like, <laughs> it just, mm, yeah, feel free to hold up stone again in case anybody didn't know what it was about. Well, because they can't coexist, Look right? at the cover. Look at the cover. Yeah. <laughs> they, they can't that's coexist. the part that's making me go like this. Those <laughs> things, that's like saying, I found a wild giraffe right. and a wild polar bear. Right. And, <laughs> right. and a wild bison and a wild <laughs> python all in my backyard. Right. Like, no, you didn't. First of all, because that's ridiculous, but mostly because 
They eat each other. They don't share an ecosystem. Those gemstones don't grow in the same matrix. They don't occur in the same parts of the world. And he just had them like in, like, he didn't even try to make it look real. Like when you find gems, they're in matrix that's in the rock, you know, they yeah. have to them out. He just had and them. And they're dirty. Aren't diamonds, diamonds aren't shiny when you find them, are they? No. Yeah. No, these were raw diamonds though. So they looked like raw diamonds. Oh, okay. The stones were, thank God, raw, although it turned out in the very end, a couple of them had jeweler's cut marks on them, right. you know, where they'd been cut badly away from something. Like they were the excess. When you have a diamond right. and you're going to cut it, you cut off a piece here, you cut oh, okay. off a piece here, you cut. Some of them were chips. It was like, come on, man. And the question it is how they took good. it. Yeah, they took it to Tiffany in New York. All the, this big gang of like uh, robber barons we're trying to steal this claim away from these two idiot miners who are not idiot miners, they're con artists, but they don't know that. And he dumps it out on his billiard table and he spends like half an hour going. <laughs> like, and he's just like, yeah, they're real. They're, they're gold. Amazing. They're fabulous. <laughs> Turns out he knew everything about jewelry and nothing about gemology. He didn't know what uh. they were supposed to look like before they were cut. He didn't know they weren't supposed to be in the same spot. He didn't, it was just, wow. he extrapolated the wrong, bigger picture from real evidence presented to him. Somebody said, is this a real diamond? And he went, yup. Wow. Well, that actually is a good segue into something you covered in both Stoned and The Truth About Lies, which is, I've heard this too, to some degree, but I didn't know the extent of which De Beers and the long con, which was the greatest example. You even said in your book, the best example of the long con right now is the diamond industry. So I'm not going to even talk about you specialize in this. You understand it. Explain to our audience exactly what that means, how intricate it is, how long it's been going on, and how synthetic diamonds <laughs> are also part of their ploy now. So I mean, that was a fantastic story. Fantastic oh my God, story. I was so delighted. Um, in Financial <laughs> Times, an article came out that said everything I've ever said about synthetic diamonds the other day. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I get in a lot of trouble with all of my very posh friends. Imagine. There's the some industry. people that don't like you. <laughs> well, yeah. um, actually the book was very popular among the jewelry industry, which I did not expect. My friends talked me into writing it drunk at a party in Paris. And, well, that and, uh, and I was like, more and more nervous as it got closer and closer to coming out. And I was like, I'm going to be run out of town on a rail. No one will ever do business with me again. I can kiss my career as a jewelry designer. Goodbye. And I was actually doing quite well. And You're the um, Anthony Bourdain of the jewelry business. Because <laughs> he said the same point, thing when he, yes. wrote, when he wrote Kitchen Confidential. He said, that's it. I'm done. My career is over. <laughs> I'm never going to work in the industry again. And then he became Anthony Bourdain as we all know him. And now look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe I should have written another book about you. Maybe. <laughs> um, but in a sense, I did because I, I felt this was a natural follow-up. You know, the first one was about why are things worth what they're worth? And this one's about why do people believe what they believe? Well, you also mentioned that you, you wrote this book because the original your stone was why do people value what they value? And then this one was every story you wrote in there, you thought in the core of it, there was a big lie. Yeah. And that, that being the diamond industry. Which... Yeah. That, that story was a lot of people's favorite from Stoned. It was about the invention of the diamond engagement ring. They don't realize yeah. it was invented as a marketing tool. Yeah. And it was invented as a marketing tool just post-World War II because this really charming guy, Cecil Rhodes, 
um, and he's not charming. That's why Rhodesia's name is Rhodesia. <laughs> He he went and he did a lot of terrible things and managed, short version, managed to accumulate 90% of the diamond claims in South Africa at the peak of the rush as it was starting. And he couldn't wrangle away this one from a guy named Oppenheimer. And a diamond came out of it this big called the Cullinan. And it's the one that a lot of the crown jewels are made out of right now in England. Hmm. And... um. So they merged and they formed the De Beers Diamond Company. But a rush is a spurt. It just, you find a big deposit of something. Everybody comes in, gathers it up, and it's over. The diamond rush never stopped rushing because it turns out it's not a rush. It turns out they're incredibly common. There are diamonds everywhere. And we've gotten better and better and better and better at mining them. So at one point, they realized that the only way anybody was going to continue to buy this product or even remotely believe it was a gemstone was to lie, just big lie and say, that's not true. There aren't, that's mostly dirt we're digging up and it's incredibly expensive for us to do that. And Rio Tinto was the most recent giant diamond mine to sell that lie to say, no, we're closing our mine because it's just too expensive for us and there aren't enough diamonds in there. And um, that's what it is. The truth is they did it because Rio Tinto is famous for red, pink and violet diamonds but a vast amount of white and yellow diamonds come out of Rio Tinto. And there's been a glut of diamonds on the market for the last several years and prices have been dropping for the first time in a century. So they closed it to stem the flood of their own white and yellow diamonds and prices have rebounded. So they decided the only way they were going to make this work was to just lie and say, they're just on a lot of diamonds. And no, you can't know how many there are because we own all of them. And you can have the ones we'll sell to you. It's called a site holding. It happens like once a year. People are invited and you are given a parcel and a price and you can take it or not take it. It really is a cartel. Wow. Yeah. And um, that went okay for them until World War II. And in World War II, it wasn't so much that people stopped buying jewelry. It was that everything got shaken up like a snow globe. And when the dust settled, the money was in different places. And most of it was in the U.S. And people in the U.S. did not traditionally like diamonds. There were not a lot of royal families left to sell them right. to. Not a lot of tiaras. <laughs> not a lot of tiaras. Not a lot of Downton Abbey style families wearing tiaras to lunch. Right. Like right. the Romanovs are dead. Uh, their customers are gone. And the money's gone. Where'd the money go? Well, somehow it all ended up in the U.S. But not, as one expects after a giant war, in a few hands. It ended up in a lot of hands, in everybody's hands, because of the New Deal and because of the GI Bill. So everybody had some extra money, just not enough to buy a tiara. And so De Beers hired an advertising company Hmm. to help them... (laughs) By the way, they were blocked from doing business in America at this point because they're a monopoly and we still cared about antitrust laws. So they convinced this advertising agency, we need to sell our diamonds and we actually don't care who buys them or where they buy them from. And the advertising agency was like, well, that's weird. That's not really a request we get often. It's usually we have a product and we want someone to buy it, not just can you mind control an entire country <laughs> into thinking they like a thing? Right. The bears is like, well, it doesn't matter where they buy them. 
all diamonds are our diamonds. Anybody selling a diamond bought it from us, so it's fine because they control the supply. And so this advertising company came up with a product for them, the diamond engagement ring, which, you know, people had engagement rings before that, but it was not de rigueur. And they were very rarely diamonds, unless you worked in the diamond industry. And then sometimes, but mostly not, definitely not in the 19th and 20th century. And so they massaged an origin story that was 90% not true. It was, it was just silliness about um, the Archduke Maximilian and how he proposed with the first ever diamond engagement ring. If you ever see a picture of it, it's like an M with little chips in it. Um, but mostly what they did was they pioneered everything from product placement. Mm-hmm. That's why there's so many diamonds in mid-century movies. You know, yeah. gentlemen prefer blondes and breakfast at Tiffany's and... Yeah. So many, if you go through it, it's almost like a drinking game. Watch a movie from the 50s and see how many scenes involve a diamond or take place in a jewelry store or they paid for it. They paid for that to happen. And people got the idea that this is what glamorous people had. This is what rich people had. This is what people in love had. Mm -hmm. And they did um, consumer outreach to children in schools about how diamond engagement rings were the only way you were really married. And I mean, the cigarette model actually borrowed their whole deal from the diamond model. And the diamond model was so good at it, nobody remembers they did it. We all just believe diamonds are rare and precious and scarce and you have to have one and inexplicably associated with marriage more than anything else. Didn't the Catholic Church get involved in this too in the in the engagement side of the world yeah but that had more to do with the crusades and not having multiple wives it was more you didn't have to have that kind of ring and women's rings were never blingy like that okay. it was really anything I string on somebody it basically it was more important that you nailed up a letter stating your intent to get married a certain amount of time before and that was the, the like the actual time lapse between we're going to get married and we're getting married. Right. Yeah. And (laughs) it was to make sure there wasn't somebody else who go, um, sir, our children are waiting for you at home. (laughs) Like, yeah, it had to do with that among other things. It had to do with money, a lot of it. But so De Beers has been running this racket forever and they had, they don't even change it up much. It's a little bit insulting to me. And it's an open secret though, right? There's nothing like, you know, you put it out there. Personally, because I keep writing books about it and they're not even changing their approach. That's what I'm saying. They're not even, they're just brazen in their, in their point, whole business just, model. At this point, they're just brazen. What they haven't been brazen about has been synthetic diamonds. They Which is a, the new twist. That's the new twist. They've set up this whole scenario where it seems like there's some, some terrible Titan battle between what they're now demanding everyone call natural diamonds, mm-hmm. good marketing, and synthetic diamonds, lab-grown diamonds. Now, to be clear, one. lab-grown diamonds are diamonds. Somebody figured out how to grow them in a lab, the same way we grow corn on a farm, instead of right. trying to find it somewhere. Right. You know, or like tulip farms are a better example, because corn really isn't real. But you know, <laughs> when you get tulips, nobody found those growing wild in Holland. There are vast fields of them where they grow them. You go to the grocery store, you buy some. Synthetic diamonds, 
are attempting to do that, to grow vast fields of synthetic diamonds. And when they're done, they really are diamonds. Exactly the same way. It's, it's carbon, like obviously carbon in the ground over a period of millions of years with a lot of pressure makes the diamond. And what you mentioned in the book was that the synthetic diamond does the same thing through a lab and that it uses so much power when they talk about the eco-friendly version. It's not eco-friendly because it uses an extraordinary amount of power and it has a huge carbon footprint per diamond, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The carbon footprint per diamond, the carbon footprint per carat for synthetic diamonds is actually worse than natural diamonds. Than mining them. Yeah. Whereas diamond mines, if you've ever seen one, are crater-sized oh yeah. stars in the earth the size of cities. So, yeah. you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> Either one's yeah. bad. Yeah, Yeah. well, bad, bad. Do you know how other gemstones are mined? I don't, yeah. There's no, no ethically good. responsible jewelry fairy that's going to bring you your sapphire. Like, no, that's true. Yeah. Um, and that is another dirty little secret about humans. We know that. <clears throat> Yeah. We like it. Yeah, we like it the same way we like the fact that this this little green rock is valuable to me because it's beautiful. It's valuable to me for a lot of reasons. It's also valuable to me because I know you probably don't have one. I right. know the next person I talk to doesn't have one. Yeah. Most people don't have an emerald. Like Yes. But deep down it's not just about positional good, which is, is mine better than yours? Which is a big part of how humans determine value for non-necessary goods. We don't do it with things like food. We don't do it with things like the ambient temperature of the room. You're either warm enough, you're either hungry, or you're not. But with non-necessary goods, they're positional. It's an economic term. And how much I like my diamond is going to depend entirely on... The diamond the next girl I see has. Was it bigger? Was right. it better? Was it right. smaller? Do I feel good about myself? It's a big part of how we value these things. And that's not flattering to begin with, but it gets <laughs> worse when I said there's no ethically conscious jewelry fairy that's going to bring you your emerald or your sapphire. But a very dark secret about humans is we value that. It was dangerous. Somebody might have died, you know, somebody, terrible things could have happened to get this. And we all go, oh, no, we don't want that. We want something ethically sourced. But do we? The price index on synthetic diamonds would suggest we do not. Hmm. It's, yeah. Is it a big disparity? Yes. Yeah. And there's a few reasons for it. But one of them is it's very easy to convince people synthetic diamonds just, you know, they're just not. They're not real. <laughs> real. They're not real. Yeah. And you can argue all day and go, what do you mean real? And nobody wants to say, nobody fought a war over it. Nobody crawled right. into a trench. Nobody got killed. As much as everybody screams, blood diamonds. Well, it does sound more exciting than lab diamond, doesn't it? Yeah. People don't like knowing these things about themselves, but facts are that which continue to exist whether or not you believe them. And these are facts about humans. But wow. part of the reason the diamond long con is the gold standard of cons is not just because they've ingrained it into society in such a way that we don't remember 
it ever not being true. You don't remember who started it. Uh-uh. It's that when you tell someone this story and they understand all of it, it doesn't matter. Right. They still want a diamond. Correct. And diamonds still cost what they cost. They Part of what a long con does is deliberately subvert your experience of reality in an elaborate orchestrated way that everyone knows about except you, which is why diamonds are like the perfect example. But the thing about lies in general and long cons in particular is if they're successful enough, they have a weird way of becoming true. Diamonds are not rare. Diamonds are not hard to find. There are far more diamonds than there are people right now in human hands. And yet they cost what they cost. If somebody offered me one, I would take it yeah, and I would be excited about it. And it's because knowing that doesn't change all of the layers of load bearing belief that it's put in along the way. And it's also a really, really, really long con because they sort of, they layered their lies. They didn't try to sell them all at once, which was also brilliant, you know? Mm-hmm. And once people believe things, it's almost impossible to get them not to believe them. So a clever thing to do would be to then take that belief and layer another belief on top of it that's dependent on it. Almost like layers of Lincoln logs or strata of earth until this little lie you told in the beginning Diamonds are really valuable and we really want one. Like like a jellyfish, like whatever, has fossilized into stone. And it's not what it was. It's there forever. Well, even the Diamonds Are Forever moniker, which was obvious, and that was written by a woman yeah. for, the, for the ad agency, is a lie. And that was another thing I didn't know. That is my favorite. Actually, <laughs> that is my favorite. I was going to say fact about diamonds. It's also my favorite lie about diamonds. Yeah, that blew me away too. Overlap. Diamonds are not forever. And they're one of the only gemstones you can say that about. Um, once you take them out of the ground and you've got them at standard temperature and pressure, they start to slowly revert back into graphite. Pencil. So that big diamond <laughs> in your ring turning into pencil lead as we speak. And how long does that take? Because I remember reading that and being like, oh, okay, but that's got to take, you know, if it took... Yeah, me- don't worry about it. It's not going to happen while you're at lunch. But I just love that they sold diamonds or I do too. about the only awesome. stone that definitely isn't. Okay, and so the emerald itself is forever? It doesn't it's decompose? Fragile. You could smash them into powder. Right, you but just on its own. burn them fire. up in a fire. You could do that with a diamond too. Um, just a higher temperature. But on its own, yeah, it's stable. Just it's a stable crystal. The thing about diamonds are, and I love this too, because it, it goes back to the next the next strata in that long con. Yeah. Being synthetic diamonds. Diamonds are in and of themselves. The fact that they can entropy fall apart. Yeah. They were kind of synthetic to begin with. They were just synthesized in the earth. 
So you're from, you said New York. I, I work there. I'm, I, there. I, yeah. Yep. You've been on a subway. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when you're on a subway and there's a lot of people, the more people that get on, the more you yeah. kind of stiffen up. Yeah. You know, in an empty subway car, you just kind of sit there and wait for your stop. In a crowded subway car, you stand up. In a really crowded stand subway car, you stand up and you put an arm like Hold this. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. you put it, if you're a girl, you know, you put another arm like this. And you're defining your space. You are rigidly under pressure, locking yourself into position mm-hmm. so that you won't be crushed or manhandled or whatever. Right. Well, carbon does the same thing. And it does it to varying degrees. That's how you get coal under more pressure. It locks into that first position of I'm going to stand up now, and that's graphite. It's in okay. it's in thin sheets of carbon rings. It stood up because it was crowded and pressured. Under more pressure, it goes, okay, that's enough. Hand up, arm up, stay back. This is my spot. And that's a diamond. It locks into a hexagonal cubic lattice. Hmm. And when you take the pressure off and everybody gets out of the subway car, do you continue to stand like that or do you relax? Oh, God. That's a good analogy. Yeah, you just kind of relax. You just kind of chill out. You're like, okay, I'm fine now. And diamonds do that when we take them out of the ground. So that's interesting in and of itself. But my favorite part of that is that synthetic diamonds are not real because, because they were pressured into existence in a lab. Really? <laughs> well, and I think what really? you touched on is that De Beers really? also owns a company, right? That That's was another... the best twist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So De Beers said for years they would never. They, they fought it. It's yeah. disgusting. They would never. They would have any part in this. That's chicanery and it's yeah. junk jewelry. Fake. And yeah. fake, 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 fake. Fake news. And anybody paying attention understands the fight between natural diamonds and synthetic diamonds is about maintaining the price hegemony of natural diamonds. If there's one natural diamond for sale and I tell you it's a million dollars and somebody else says, really, because I have 150 more exactly like it and you can have any one of them for $10,000, which one are you going to buy? Yeah, the the latter. So it seems like they're engaged in some sort of psychological, which is their bag. They're obviously good at it. Well, but that's the thing that's been troubling me that I said in a documentary just about this subject, synthetic diamonds, um, that I think is coming out soon, actually. It's called Origin Stories. And, um, oh, cool. The thing is, they are good at it. And you don't go from being the best in the world at what you do to being the worst in the world at what you do overnight. That's not a real thing. And they've been, trying really hard to convince people they don't want synthetic diamonds and it's not working. And then it gets worse because all of a sudden they had the, uh, the FCC redefine, well, they, the FCC redefined a diamond, the definition of an elemental diamond to include lab grown diamonds. And the whole world lost its mind. And that's when they started demanding, we call the ones from mines, natural diamonds. Natural. And you see that and you think, why would they do that to De Beers? We all know they work hand in glove. That doesn't make sense. 
except De Beers owns a company called Element 6. It does technology because De Beers is owned by a larger company called Anglo-American. And there, it's just layers of companies. And Element 6 works with diamonds and technology. And just as soon as the FCC changes the definition of a diamond to include a synthetic diamond, De Beers goes, so actually we have a fuck ton of synthetic diamonds and they're much better than yours. And they come right. in lots of colors. And we're going to start our own jewelry line in about five minutes called Lightbox. About five minutes. So they were, they were, they were ready to go. They'd already they done were, all of this. Yes. This Element six had been, layer. everybody else is racing to develop <clears throat> synthetic diamonds that are jewelry quality, that are bigger than a carrot. They're really white. And they're like, oh, we've got white. We got pink. We got yellow. We got blue. We're going to have some other colors soon. And uh, we got them all in the back. And they're really big. You want to buy some? <laughs> Our stores will be open soon. Oh, God. It's amazing. And then it looks less like something the FCC did to De Beers and more like something they did for De Beers because mm-hmm. now they can still say they're selling diamonds. But here's where I say you don't go from being the best in the world at what you do to being the worst in the world at what you do because that was a De Beers move. That was sick. I mean, mad props, Mm -hmm. right? But then they start making the jewelry and selling the jewelry, marketing the jewelry. And this is where they've been the best in the world with this shit. The jewelry's ugly. I mean, the diamonds are mind-blowing. Jewelry's ugly. The ads are like, Advertising 101, don't do that. Hmm. They put all the jewelry in one ad. And now I'm sure you can tell me, don't do that. If you're trying to spe- sell something that's special and rare and precious, yeah. you put one in the ad. You put a diamond in the ad. You know, go, here's a pair of bearings, here's another pair of bearings, here's three necklaces. It, it looks like the counter at JCPenney. Yeah, that's not a good move. That's why the iPhone was such a great ad. It just had a phone. <laughs> it's it on the banner. There's phone. Yeah. One phone. The engagement ring. The one ring. Yeah. The engagement ring. The diamond as the only gemstone anyone cares about. Don't make an ad with 800 different kinds of jewelry in it. It's confusing and it makes it look cheap. Yeah. And then speaking of cheap, they price fixed because they could. And they price fixed way down. I mean, these things cost nothing. They're selling them for hundreds of dollars a carat. So they did the opposite of everything they did for the last hundred years. Right. And everybody's going, wow, the synthetic diamond market's going to destroy the natural jewelry market and they're all losing hmm. their mind. And, and I'm thinking, you don't go from being the best in the world at what you do to being the worst in the world. This we're still in the long con. What are they doing? Hmm. I think what they're doing is trying to make people not want that synthetic diamond jewelry. I was going to say, there's no way they're doing this without some master plan, right? Because that sounds, to your point, it's too stupid. You can't stop, <laughs> you can't stop no. progress, Mary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Synthetic diamonds were coming. Now they control the market, they control the narrative, and they control the price. And the narrative and the price tell me, I don't want a synthetic diamond. Ruining I still them. want a real diamond from De Beers. ruining them on purpose. Ruining them on purpose while simultaneously, Element 6 and Foundry have gone into the tech industry. This is why I was so delighted the other day, as I predicted like five, 10 years ago. The end game for synthetic diamonds is never going to be jewelry anyway. It's computers. It's computers. They're trying to make micro-thin wafers and superconductors. Yep. 
So we'll have quantum computing in everyone's hand. Well, and that's funny because that came up in an advertising conference probably six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And the first thing most of us thought of was, oh, that'll be too expensive. Because we bought into the long con of scarcity and the, the diamonds themselves. I could are make you graphene in my blender right now. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> yes, I believe it. And that, and that was a big part of the hoax chapter. The chapter on hoaxes is it, it matters less whether or not something's true to mass behaviors. Like, did you guys go, nah, diamonds are too expensive? It matters less if it's true than if it's believed to be true. Right, right. And now we know, or at least I know, because this is a discussion we had years ago, that I'm like, as I was reading your thing, I was like, oh man, they're cheap. We just don't think they're cheap. So that obviously is the next step for me. And I'm not a tech guy. I'm just, I sell tech. You understand (laughs) the chip war that's about to happen in East Asia? I do not. No. Oh, okay. So there is a <laughs> scarcity of, of microchips and what we make microchips out of, and they come from East Asia. And, and is that enough. because of the, the pandemic? No. It's no. because every day, I'm making this number up, twice as many devices need a microchip. Right. Remember 20 years ago, what needed a microchip? A computer. That's it. Yeah. Now we have them in our cars. <laughs> Could you list the things that need a microchip now? No. Children's actually, I just saw. I just saw, some, I just saw a buddy of mine. Cosmetic devices that need microchips. Okay. Like yes. you know, like those ones where you go on your face. It's supposed to make you beautiful. It never really works. And it's very expensive. <laughs> and everything <clears throat> microchip. And within industries, they're fighting over priority. Okay. Who needs them more? Who gets them more if these are limited good? I think it was Intel just invested a staggering nine-figure sum of money in New Mexico to build multiple, and Arizona, to build multiple chip plants. Wow. We're We're bringing that industry home, apparently. But there will still be a shortage of raw materials. You want to know what the funniest raw material we have a shortage of is? It's not funny. It's actually terrifying. But it's funny when you hear it. What? Gas. Water. That's not funny at all because we'll die without it. (laughs) I'm talking about industry. (laughs) Gas. Water. But no, in terms of making microchips. I don't know. Sand. Sand. We have a shortage the world of sand. Has a shortage. I did not sand know that. Sand is vital to construction, and we have covered the globe in concrete and cities and buildings. And China started building giant artificial islands, and they've done, been doing it in oh. the Red Sea also. We have a sand shortage. Oh, Dubai may have had something to do with that too. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, that's what I said. The Red Sea. Oh yeah. Just, well, building... I don't know geography. <laughs> oh, that's that's Dubai. They're building yes, them that would have, yes, and, if I was smarter, I would have gathered that inference, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we're clearly bringing that, this is my opinion, but based on what I'm seeing, we're bringing that, that industry home, making our own chips instead of buying them from East Asia. And that might help, but we need the natural resources to do it. And I can't help but think within the next 10 years, we're going to transition to diamond wafers. They're easier, they're more cheap, they're durable. They don't, do you know, we have the ability to build computers that are much further from 
you know, what we have right now, what I'm looking at, a laptop, and much closer to Star Trek than we're actually capable of. And the problem is an upward limit on heat. The way a microchip works, the way a circuit board works, is you are running electrons like water, like soldiers, whatever, in a line through these circuits. And you can only run them so fast because the faster you run them, the faster the computer works. The faster it thinks, the more the more computations per second, the greater the processing power. You know, you've got a supercomputer. But you can only run them so fast because the faster they run, the hotter they physically get. Yeah. And there's a point at which silicon melts. melts. The whole thing just melts down. That's not a problem with diamonds. No. They're not ever going to get too hot. That's how they get barfed out of volcanoes. Right. <laughs> They're fine. Right. <laughs> I mean, they wow. can get too hot, but not at a temperature that they're ever going to see. They're not so. going to get to 2,000 degrees in a computer. Yeah. There's a <laughs> right. temperature where you can vaporize a diamond, but it's... Way hot. You have to be doing it on purpose, and it would be very difficult. Yes. Man. So that's the next phase. Next phase of the long con, because with each layer, what you're doing is not just resting on the credibility of the previously believed lies. Diamonds are scarce. Diamonds are valuable. I want a diamond. I need a diamond. Right. Diamonds are diamonds. Now you've got synthetic diamonds. Di synthetic diamonds aren't diamonds because they can't be diamonds. So it's just another layer. And it doesn't just rest on the credibility of the other ones. It actually, like pressure, cements them further into our general sense of objective reality. Diamonds are really expensive and you really want one. Man. That is so cool. So you, you basically framed your book on lies we tell each other, lies we tell ourselves, and lies we all agree to believe. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that was the last one. Correct. And that is a lie that encompasses the big lie. It encompasses the long con. <laughs> it encompasses the lies that we all believe together. It was... I loved both of your books. I wouldn't even know exactly how to... I wouldn't choose one over the other because they were both so well-written and witty. Thank you. And wonderfully dark. <laughs> which again, I, I mean that in a very, in a very big compliment, not pejorative. I think it was just, it was one of those things after I got your personality, which was quick. You, I mean, even one of the lines I remember when we were talking about the Romanovs, how he got into the Romanov empire was through Melitza. And you said, and unfortunately for them, Melitza was a moron. <laughs> she was. I know, but it was just so great. It was just woven in between the paragraph. And I thought, oh, that's great. Because it was just that kind of writing where it kept it funny. And human nature is not obviously always funny. It's kind of tragic, as you talked about, which I concur. It's, it's there. We're just a dark culture sometimes. But it was, it's a fantastic book. It comes out May 11th? It does. It comes out May 11th. And this is also the first book I've ever run on Kindle because I'm old and I like Ooh. to read books. I do and too. I, and I'm the first advanced reader copy I've ever had. So this was really cool. I really appreciate you, number one, taking a note from me on Facebook. <laughs> hey, I just want to talk to you. I just figured you. out how to use that feature on Facebook. <laughs> so I was like, wow, there are notes going back like 10 years. Oh, see, I'm glad, I'm I, I'm glad you caught me. <laughs> I'm glad you caught me. Because that was, it was so cool on so many fronts on what I'm trying to do, which is just talk about things no one wants to talk about. And that's, that's why I wanted to reach out. And again, I, you getting back to me and me having the fun of reading both of your books. And by the way, a, an accolade for Madonna. 
I didn't even notice right away. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty, pretty big one. <laughs> she liked Thank you. Oh, you don't you have an advanced reader copy. I, I got some nice ones on the new one. Um, Penn Gillette was my favorite what? on the new one. Oh, that's great. And you wrote about it. cool things to say. If you can get a professional magician who isn't just a magician, he explains exactly how his tricks work to people. Yeah. Like, don't be stupid. It works like this. And who is engaging in experimental psychology to read your book and be like, she's a smart cookie. Yeah. Like, oh, that's good. So that's he's one of your cool. new ones. That's pretty well, cool. He, and he's in the book. His partner's in the book because he's working with a research team. Got but it. yeah, I guess they're both in the book because they're in the story of the. You mentioned him. Balls. Yes, yes, magicians. <laughs> I'm looking at my uh, percentage here. It was a hundred when we started. Now it's two. Yeah, I, we've been on a while, and again, I I don't want to take any more of your time, but it was a true pleasure meeting you. I even. have seven percent left. You got any more questions? <laughs> Uh, it comes out on May 11th. What, and you were in a documentary, you said, were you interviewed yes. for a documentary um, about, uh, yeah, it diamonds? was, uh, it was very cool. And, um, it was supposed to go to Sundance and then Sundance got canceled. Yes. <laughs> a lot of things did. So it got pushed back, but I think it's coming out soon. It's, um, showtime and it's called origin stories, origin stories. And the director and producer's name is Jason Cohen. He's a really cool guy. does amazing documentaries about all sorts of different things. That's cool. And when and do you know when it comes out? Or is- uh, I don't have the information. Okay. Me. I should know yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess it comes out on May 11th. Yes. And well, if you I, want to hear more terrifying things about diamonds, watch out for origin stories because that's. I will be for sure. Good. I will for sure watch that because this this whole thing fascinated me. I mean, my wife even made the joke. She's like, "You bought this ring for you," because she didn't even want a diamond ring. That's and I, true. And I, I did buy it for me. <laughs> so most men do because uh-huh. they've been conditioned to. Yeah. They they've been taught without realizing it, and groomed really to believe yeah. that they're worth is expressed in this object and its dollar value. Well, and they even All s- of set which the dollar stops value. on that train of thought are completely arbitrary. Yes. Well, they set the value, right? Two months salary. They set yeah. that a long time ago. And then they made it three. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and then, then Instagram for- happened and now girls compare their rings and nobody likes theirs. Right, right. <laughs> so everyone's unhappy. Way to everyone's go, unhappy. Videos. Engagement ring sales have been plummeting and they've been looking well, they for have- a new gig. Well, there we go. I wish you luck on this book. I don't think you need it because I think it's already a bestseller, but um, just like your last one was. Well, thank you so much. That was great. I mean, it was my pleasure and I look forward to uh, watching what you're going to do with this next book. And I have you, I'm following you on, on your, on your uh, social. So I'll, I'll see what happens. Cool. Well, it was great to meet you. You too. I'm glad we got to do this. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.